When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are two rules to remember if you want to have a good time. Rules! No rules! Rule number one. Keep your friends close, but your enemies close. Rule number two. You're a dragon. Be a dragon. Ciao, Bella. Today, on a very special episode of Double Dragon, I interview David Peterson. He's the linguist who invented High Valyrian and the guy who writes the dialogue for Rhaenyra and Damon when they speak High Valyrian in the show. Then I interview medieval historian Kavita Mudan Finn. I also include a short excerpt of my conversation with Ian McGinnis. Finally, Steve and I do some listener feedback. We would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes. All right, without further ado, here is linguist extraordinaire David J. Peterson. So I'm with David Peterson. He's he's the guy. He's the guy behind all of the uh, languages that you've been watching on almost every screen everywhere. Uh, inventor of the linguistic paradigms uh, and a lot of the vocabulary for High Valyrian, the author of a number of books, including The Art of Language Invention, and you've written a, a children's book called Create Your Own Secret Language. Is that what it's called? That's right. And it goes from ciphers, so like the very elementary ciphers, up to elementary language creation, and kind of a, in a step-by-step way. I've got a child who's maybe just nerdy enough to appreciate <laughs> that book. I think, I'm not shining you on, I think I'm going to purchase this as soon as we're done here. It sounds fantastic. So Macmillan, I'm sure, will have that on the website, and I'm sure you could also buy it from other book vendors, well-known book vendors as well, right? Wherever they may be, I don't yes. know. Like, you never know who's selling <laughs> books these days. Sure. Where do you even go to buy a book? Um, so before we jump into linguistic stuff, I'm just kind of curious, how are you enjoying House of the Dragon? I'm really liking it so far. For those who are listening at the time of recording, we have uh, cleared episode three. And, uh, and I've been enjoying it a lot. Um, I've actually been totally cool with the uh with the time skips which might be jarring a bit for 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 watchers but i think they're doing a really really good job with it the dragons are great um and uh and i i i'm really appreciating the performances uh it's it's you know early days of the season where it's like you're figuring out who i really like here yeah i think that the first episode i was really I, I just couldn't take my eyes off Damon Targaryen. I just thought he, this guy is stealing every scene he's in. Yeah. And in more recent episodes, I've really come to appreciate a lot of these other actors. You know, King Viserys is just, I, I mean, I've never seen someone die from a thousand paper cuts so convincingly. It, he's just amazing. As far as the, just the performance 
of what that actor is accomplishing, I, I'm, I'm just in awe of what he's been able to do. Do you have a favorite yeah, character think... so far? I have many. I have many. Uh, but oddly enough, the one that I keep watching is the series too. Uh, because, you know, especially the first episode, you don't really know what he's all about because at times he seems like such a marshmallow, kind of like the <laughs> the Robert Baratheon, like, fun time king. It's like, hey, everybody just have a good time, man. We got a kingdom here and it's it's for fun. Um, they keep throwing stuff yeah. at him. You kind of figure out why he is the way he is. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they give him the opportunity, you know, to to really um, to really show you how he got to where he is. Um, and also, you know, at times uh, to show his to show his strength and to show you that there is something mm-hmm. else underneath the exterior. And then also at times to show you it's like, gosh, all this poor guy really wants to do is just play with his model trains, you know. <laughs> well, he wishes that people would just kind of give him a break. And yeah. it's not like he it's not like he doesn't think his job's important. He's just so over it. And you know, he 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 does give the sense of like a CEO who is already looking looking sideways for some some way to get out. He's looking for that golden parachute. Uh but there's none to be had. He's going to have this job till he's dead. So <laughs> And it might happen sooner than later because the Iron Throne wants to kill him. That was a nice little a, a nice little tidbit in episode one. Uh, you know, nobody mm-hmm. sits easy on the Iron Throne. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's always that's always nice to reinforce. Uh, okay, we've gone past episode one, but I do want to talk about a scene in episode one. Okay, it's the scene that kind of hooked me in this show, and it's when Renera comes in and sees Damon on the Iron Throne. This sort of this this key sacrilege you know to to, for anyone but the king to be sitting on that throne and for her to kind of look at him almost lovingly and with a bit of admiration because she's a little bit sacrilegious herself and immediately they drop into high valerian or they code switch i suppose into high valerian and all of the sudden i'm in I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm in that world. And it was that code switch that really did it for me. It said so much. It was like shorthand for the world building in a sense that these two have an elite education. They have a shared history together. They're both, from my view, you can correct me, equal levels of of fluent and and it's almost as if they are reflecting off each other in a way that no other two characters can in the episode and i just thought it was a brilliant use of this particular language if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that scene i would love to hear you talk about it essentially the series reminds me of um the kind of first generation um uh, I'm sorry, first or second generation. Basically, the he, the one whose parent only spoke, you know, Valyrian, maybe. Mm. And so now Viserys is this guy who is absolutely fluent in Valyrian, but doesn't want you to know it. He wants his kids to be able to be fluent in the language of the New World, right? Yes. 
and and they are but you can see that with that they're now kind of like not one step but two steps removed there's a lot of like third generation kids who are like wait a minute we had this whole cool culture and you basically like didn't give it to us <laughs> sure. Why? yeah sure <laughs> um now uh of course they're a little different because they actually they are fluent in high valerian so that's cool like it, I, evidently that was important enough in their household to maintain so that they actually are fluent but i mean culturally you can see like they are more in tune with it they're more excited by it than somebody like the series who is like yeah 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 i know all that stuff but you know we're, we're here now let's be focused on being here um and so that's just i think a really cool kind of level of detail that was added um so yeah for that scene i i have to say you know when i was um you know jumping back a little bit when I was first brought onto the show, I was both uh, delighted and surprised because I was a part of two other uh, Game of Thrones prequel series. Uh, oh, interesting. Uh, one of them was the one that produced uh, the pilot, Blood Moon one. So um, mm-hmm. that was that was an interesting experience. You know, I, I got to use my Children of the Forest language. It got abandoned in Game of Thrones. I got to use it. Um, and then they also had me create an Andalish language because in that setting, the old tongue was going to be represented by English. And just and so, a, as a sort of a, a follow-up question here, did Martin ever give us any Andal vocabulary in any of the works? Yes. Um, so words like sept, septa, septum. Okay, this is, would be all be from the Andals, okay. Yes. Okay. Um, and so, uh, and of course, what it's just very few because modern Andalish is yeah, yeah, yeah. common tongue, which is English in the series. But this was going to flip it because it was going to be the invasion of the Andals. And so they were going to be represented as the foreigners. And so the old tongue was going to be English. And then the Andal language, they had me create one. And so I did. I created a language that basically could have, you know, plausibly, if you evolved it, sound like modern English. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and of course, we produced a pilot and then it was canceled um, and I never saw it. So sure. like, somewhere that pilot exists. And I really wonder if it will ever see the light. It's in the vault. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I worked on it, damn it. I want to see what it was. But, um, <laughs> sure. So there was the, there was that. But then I was also associated with the old Valyria prequel, which would have been set in Valyria before the doom. Sure. And I was brought in at a very, very early stage. This is like before even network drafts, because they were talking about like, well, you know, they're all going to be speaking high Valyrian. So we have to do it in English. But, you know, we still want to use the language. We're also we're coming up with a religion. uh, So like, here are some ideas for gods, you know, give us input on that. Like we were going all into it. And then that was canceled like before before the uh, stage where you even got to a pilot got it but it's like for both of those projects i was projects i was involved so early that suddenly i see this announcement from hbo that like you know house of the dragon is going to be the next prequel and i'm like okay that's news to me right (laughs) it's news to me and not only that it sounds like it kind of you know, really features a lot of people that might be speaking Valerian and nobody said word one to me. Right. And then it's like, 
it was several months after that that I finally was contacted and see, I have some delirium for you. And I'm like, geez, at this stage, like, yeah, I think I even talked to you at that stage where it's sort of like, we're pretty sure this is going to happen, but no one's actually contacted the guy that's got to write some of the dialogue here. So anyway. And so then when I was contacted and then when I saw the level of dialogue that they were going to have me translated, I was kind of like, wow, (laughs) completely unexpected. Um, And so anyway, all this is to build back up to like, yeah, this is the first scene. And it's like, and you know, you should know that when I got the dialogue, I got it all. Um, I think they had everything but episode 110 done. Mm. So I had all the dialogue, but it's like, yeah, looking at the first scene, I'm like, this is a significant amount. And so um, I'm looking at this entire back and forth. And I'm like, my goodness, this entire scene is in High Valyrian. And yeah. it's like you go, go to like the next episode. She's like, Jesus, look at all this back and forth. And then the episodes that are coming, it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So like that was something that was really quite unique um, because, you know, while High Valyrian enjoyed a lot of use in Game of Thrones, um, there wasn't a lot of back and forth. It was mainly Daenerys speaking in High Valyrian. Mm-hmm. Other people kind of like speaking in Astapoy or Myrnese Valyrian. And then also a lot of back and forth in Dothraki, uh, depending on the season. Um, and so uh, this was giving me a chance to be like, all right, this is, these are people who are fluent in High Valyrian, who each have their own style. Mm-hmm. And so who can make their their own active choices about how they want to use the language and would also be used to conversing back and forth in it. Right. A language almost needs a culture, right? So you almost need someone to speak it with, right? Whereas Danny, like she would only get rare opportunities to speak it. And I always got the sense that it was, you know, it was quote unquote her mother tongue, but I never got the sense that she was fluent in the way that these characters are. Is that your sense as well? It's, it's hard to, it's hard to explain it. She would be like, you know, a hundred percent fluent, but not conversational. Oh, interesting. And maybe it's a a reading language for her. Basically. uh, In the, in the way that in this way, like when you read um, something that's been, you know, written, and uh, especially like if you think about like 19th century English for books that were written like that. Yeah. Um, they, they're written, they're fluent, they're written very well. Um, but there's a lot of reflection. It's like on word choice and sentence choice. It's like um, and it's like structured very beautifully and just so um, you don't usually read stuff from that era. That's like, hey, what's up? How you doing? It's like, am I? You know, things like that. <laughs> sure. Um, and so that's that's kind of like the component she's missing. So, so where like she sounds very formal and stilted. And, and it's and it's kind of interesting because you can see a little bit of that. It's it's a little bit further removed, but it's like the very highly educated, uh, you know, the masters and so on of, of Slaver's Bay. I understand High Valyrian, but it's like being lectured by a teacher. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I do want to talk about another scene. Yeah. All right. It's the scene in the second episode where Rhaenyra shows up dramatically to kind of confront her uncle, who's kind of being an ass. 
and she basically says that much. She she basically gets off the dragon, walks right up to him, and says, "What are you going to do about this? Because here I am." She establishes that she knows High Valyrian again, and they have a mutual respect. But then, at a crucial moment, she drops out of High Valyrian. Code switches back to the common tongue. And it was almost as if that moment was a key transition because she wants everyone to hear that she has called his bluff. And I just thought, what an excellent use of language in this scene in a way that brings High Valyrian into the world in a way that enhances it and not just sort of like a garnish or something that's superficial. It's sort of integral to the how that scene works. It's uh, it's a kind of uh, it's a kind of power play. You see it with language, but it also features in just different things. It's like, you know, there's also the distinction where it's like you're whispering something to somebody. And then it's like when you see it's not going your way, then you just speak very loudly. So suddenly everybody's looking at you. So it's like you can do the same thing in the same language. But it's like when you're when she's in High Valyrian talking to Damon, it's like, all right. This is just between us, you know, can we work this out? And then it's like, she's all like, you know, so you're having a baby and he clearly sees that it's like, well, you know, one day I will. And then she's like, all right, that's it. I said, we're done here. <laughs> okay. I was going to try to work this out with you. you know? Yeah. I, maybe you could answer this for me. I'm imagining that there are several maesters who will be able to understand High Valyrian. I'm, I'm imagining... That most Targaryens who are in and around court are some level of fluent with High Valyrian. I'm wondering about someone like Otto Hightower or some of the other folks who are around and listening to the conversation. Like, how many of those people do you think would understand what they're talking about? That's a good question. Um, the best answer, or I'm sorry, the, the accurate answer is I don't know. But in truth, like if, let's say if it were me in court, the best thing that you could do is pretend that it's like, oh, yeah, of course, in my education, I, you know, had a couple of little classes in High Valyrian here and there. And so I, I don't really speak the language because in effect, it's to your advantage to be able to understand the language that others are using. Right. Yeah. And so it's like with, with guys like that, it's like, if they do understand high Valyrian, they should never tell anybody about it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're right. It's advantageous for someone like Otto to be fluent enough to be able to eavesdrop, but also never reveal that he, he is eavesdropping basically. Yeah, I mean, it's effectively the same thing that Daenerys does in uh, sure. Storm of Swords, um, where uh, it's like, basically, Krasnys has given her an advantage, and she recognizes it immediately, by yes. assuming that she doesn't speak Valyrian, and she's yeah. like, why would I betray this? What advantage does this do me if I can understand him and he thinks I don't? Yes, that's right. Yeah, no, that, that's a great... I hadn't thought about that, but that's a, it's a great analogy here. So I, I just, I've got, just got a couple questions for you, just about sort of like how the sausage is made a bit. And so let's just start here. Like, what is your relationship with subtitles? 
Because I think as an old as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate subtitles a bit more. But it's sort of an interesting choice to use subtitles in a show when you don't have to. Um, and I'm I'm curious about what how how does how do you let's say it's not something that you've written. How would how what's your general feeling about watching a show with subtitles? Um, when you have a lot of back and forth conversation, like a whole scene in it, you absolutely do need it. Um, I think that there are very clever and very masterful ways to not use subtitles. Um, in just a very small way, I've been watching uh, a league of their own, and uh, there's uh, two characters who speak Spanish. And and for one of them, at one point, they always subtitle what they're saying. But there's a one point in time where she just starts going off and speaking mm. very quickly and they don't subtitle it. But you understand what's happening in the context of that scene. And it's actually kind of better if you don't. Just because of the tone of her voice? Because of the tone of her voice, the situation. Um you you understand what's going on and so it's better not to have subtitles for that um sticking with spanish i will tell you that one of the best uses of a lack of subtitles that i've ever seen um is in a show called teen titans it's extraordinary the uh teen titans the the was the cartoon uh it was on cartoon network it had robin and a bunch of other characters but there are two characters uh, called um, Mas y Menos, uh, Plus and Minus, that speak Spanish exclusively. Um, and none of their dialogue is ever subtitled, but it doesn't need to be because it's done so well with illustrations on screen. You know, it's, it's mm. anime influenced. It's not anime, but it's anime influenced. And so they can do a lot more with expressions and a lot right. more with like kind of fourth wall breaking like background illustrations and so you always understand everything that they're saying except for like you know a scene where like maybe they're arguing with each other and you're not supposed to understand but you see that they're arguing so um i think it's really really wonderful for uh kind of immersive learning yes something like that has to be constructed just so yeah it's not many productions that can do something like that um but when it's done and when it's done well it's just it's so wonderful so okay i mean i i just know a little bit of spanish i don't know and i don't know it well enough to be able to say oh that was absolutely an error but every now and again you'll hear something spoken in spanish and you'll realize oh this the subtitle didn't actually match what the person just said and so that actually i mean that happens in in my work too oh really okay so give me an example of something like that i mean like it it happens all the time um so let's see like you know um it was like uh you you, there's this uh, line episode two where linear then this is the subtitle you're to have a child Mm -hmm. Um, chicago means to give birth to is like in the future tense and it's second person plural and so basically it's like she's saying you two are going to give birth and she says to both of them in the same way it'd be like a couple it's like oh you're having a baby Mm, yeah so so you two um, are expecting 
is what she's basically asking. yeah yeah basically and then his response uh is, like one day it's not actually one day it's um in um in a day in the future Razilari to me and so it's actually much um much less of a hedge than he does in English. It's it's very clear, like when he says to you, you know, Mazilare to be. It's like <laughs> I mean at some point in time we're gonna have a <laughs> Yeah, it's possible. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah. So and, and it's like it's just like it comes like a, it comes across a, a little differently. So it's like like uh, you already have a wife it's like uh, that's that one's pretty standard it's it's just you know a wife already you have his response is not one of my choosing um it's a, a best way to say that would be like you know the, the way that it, uh uh one that i have chosen no <laughs> that's fantastic I, lo- I love those little details um, one last little thing, and then I'll let you go. So, sure. all right, I'm imagining that when you your process is that you will translate, then you'll record your voice, and then that recording will be delivered to the actors, right? Yeah. And so they're mimicking you, right? Yes. Will they also get sort of a phonetic rendering? of these words to make it easy to look at, or do they just see the high Valyrian in the script? Oh, no, they, well, um, I wouldn't say necessarily a phonetic rendering, but they have a, 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 uh, what you call it? Um, uh, syllable by syllable breakdown. Okay. I was um, wondering about that. Yeah. Cause I, I would imagine it's, it's no small feat to actually be able to communicate with feeling some of these lines, if you don't know which syllables to emphasize. I, I will say it this way. I give them more information than they might use. Mm. Because every actor's process is different. And so I don't know what will be useful. Right. I sure. know that everything that I give has been seen as useful for at least, you know, one actor. And so I'd rather give them more than they need. Makes sense. Every... Every so often, it's something different. It was really interesting in this, uh, in, in Dune, um, Timothy Chalamet, like I always record uh, at full speed and then slow and then give the English. Um, and he wanted all of his lines just the slow speed and nothing else. It's not Maybe like he does this with everything. Head. Maybe he like slows down podcasts. So everyone sounds like they're drunk. He just prefers it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's like, you know, it's like, all right, that's that's what's going to help you. Then great. I'm, yeah, I'm there for you. You know, hey, man, I always appreciate our conversations. I always learn something that's fascinating and I know my listeners love it, too. So I appreciate you coming on. I am happy to be here. Thanks for having me again. We're getting geared up for the sixth annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off badass season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. 
Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. If you have a question for a real-life medievalist, uh, an expert in the field, you can email those to book at baldmove.com. It might be Kavita that answers the question. It might be one of our other guests. Um, but, yeah, if, you, if you're watching House of the Dragon and you come up with a question that you'd like uh, to have answered, book at baldmove.com. This is from Devin. Devin writes... In House of the Dragon, we meet a childhood queen who is heir to the throne. From my very limited research, it seems that child kings were sometimes unhistorical reality. It also seems that queens were sometimes enthroned as rulers, in other words, heads of state. But are there any examples of childhood female heads of state? In other words, do we have any examples of both outliers at once? We have some very small, rare examples. Um, this tended to not happen very often. So um, just, I'm just going to re. I'm sorry, just to reframe oh, sure. Devin's question. I think Devin's asking, yeah, we have child kings, and then sometimes we have queens. Would it ever be? Do we have ever ever have an example of a young girl as the head of state? I think that that's the question. Yes, it has happened. Um, it is rare. It is extremely rare. Um, and the version that I, the, the story that I'm going to bring up, uh, the main reason that I bring it up is because it is very much the direct inspiration, one of the direct inspirations for uh, the Dance of the Dragons. Mm. Um, and it is the story of how this went wrong. Um, so the story of Rhaenyra Targaryen is definitely drawing inspiration from a particular period in the 12th century in England that was known as the Anarchy. So you can already right. tell how well this is going. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> you've labeled it the anarchy. This is probably not going to go well. It's right? not going to go well. So um, in the year 1120, uh, there was a shipwreck, and this was known as the wreck of the white ship. Normally, ships wrecked in the channel all the time. Would not have been a big uh -huh. deal. 
Unfortunately, this ship contained the heir to the English throne, William the Eckling, and his family. Oh, so valuable cargo. Yeah, valuable cargo. Apparently, everyone was drunk. It was a party ship. They sailed off into the channel, <laughs> and boom, never seen again. Okay, all right. So after losing the heir to the throne, uh, Henry II named his only living child his new heir, and this was his daughter, Matilda. Um, and Matilda was at the time married to the emperor of Germany. She was known as the, she was known as Empress Matilda. Um, okay. and Henry made all of his Lords swear fealty to her when she was in her late teens. So she wasn't a child, but, uh, she was a teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind is she had already been married to the emperor of Germany. So she already had at least some experience, um, as a ruler, sort of doing, uh, behaving as a right. doing. She's what a legitimate queen at this. Point. Oh yeah, absolutely no, and 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 she was, uh, and from all accounts, she was actually quite good at it. Uh, so some this happens in a, in and around 1120. Some 15 years later, in the year 1135, Henry died with no other heirs. So he had married again. He tried to have another son, didn't work out. So. Mm -hmm. On the books, de jure, Matilda was still his heir. Okay. Unfortunately, when Henry died, Matilda was on the wrong side of the channel. She was in Anjou in northern France. And Matilda's cousin, Stephen of Blois, who had not as good a claim to the throne, but was also a man, um, mm -hmm. and was also very personable, very charismatic, very good friends with a lot of the local barons. Uh, yeah. Stephen was persuaded. We don't know. We don't know how much he wanted it. We don't know how much of this was his plan, how much of this was sort of impulse, but he was persuaded to push his own claim to the throne because his mother was Henry the Henry the second, Henry the first, Henry the first sister. Okay. So, he had an indirect claim to the throne. Matilda had a direct claim, but Stephen was a guy. Um, so many of the English barons decided to support him uh, and put him on the throne. So Stephen became king. He was crowned at Westminster Abbey in England, all the while Matilda was on the far side of the channel, trying mm. to gain enough support to get over to England and retake her throne. So she started off the war in a disadvantaged position. And part of this, frankly, was her dad's fault, because Henry I, instead of keeping his daughter in England, having her rule at his side, making it basically putting her next to him and sort of putting her in front of his barons mm -hmm. over and over and over again, it's like, OK, this is my heir. You have to listen to her. She's going to be in directly involved with all of your disputes. Instead of doing something like that, he married her off to someone who was going to improve his short-term prospects in Anjou. Uh -huh. Clearly, Henry I believed that he would be able to marry again and have another son. Like, clearly, this was a stopgap measure for him. Um, he did not, uh, it's, I mean, honestly, we, we obviously, we, we don't know what he was actually thinking at the time, but it seems to me, based on, uh, based on his behavior, that he didn't really expect that she was going to inherit the throne from him. Mm -hmm. Um, instead, he was just kind of filling in the gaps until such time as he could have a son. That did not work out for him. So instead, he ended up leaving behind chaos. Um, right. So Stephen of Law took the throne. Matilda came in with an army and tried to retake it. 
She briefly did, and then Stephen kicked her off again. She was captured at one point. Uh, there is this absolutely harrowing account of her climbing out the window using sheets, the window of the Tower of London to escape, <laughs> like in the middle of winter. This is sure. crazy stuff. Um, it's, it's an absolutely wild story. But um, so Stephen and Matilda both had very strong supporters and the war was largely a stalemate for a very, very long time. So this war lasted from 1135 to 1154. 1154, Stephen died. Now, Stephen had had a son, but his son was, from all accounts, a complete failure at life. Like, just he was just this terrible kid. Um, essentially, like, if you want to see Joffrey Baratheon in, uh, in English history, I believe Stephen's kid might just about qualify. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Right. Yeah, he, he was apparently just a total piece of work. Um, so Stephen, at this point, had also become very close to his nephew, Matilda's son, at least in part because Stephen had him as a hostage for quite some time. Okay. Um, and eventually Stephen decided, you know what? My son is a loser and I am probably going to see if I can end this war by leaving the throne to Matilda's son. Hmm. So okay. while Stephen and Matilda themselves never actually resolved their issues, in the end, Matilda withdrew her claim to the throne in favor of her sons. And Stephen, when he died in 1154, left the throne to Matilda's son, who became Henry II, who is known oh. perhaps also as Eleanor of Aquitaine's husband. So oh, that okay. is how all of that came about. And that may also explain why Henry II was such an aggressively hands-on king, because mm. he had witnessed firsthand the damage that can be done when you are not careful with your aristocrats. Sure, sure. Yeah, and, you know, it's, of course, there's certainly some House of the Dragon DNA in this story. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not an exact fit, but, uh, man, there's a few key players in that historical episode that uh, could have easily been the inspiration for yeah. sort of the the early days of the House of the Dragon situation. Absolutely. Yeah, they, I mean, much like the main story in um, in the Song of Ice and Fire is clearly got it's clearly got its roots in the Wars of the Roses. I mean, just York, Lancaster, Stark, Lannister, mm -hmm. like oh, the whole thing is right there. But obviously, what George R. R. Martin is doing is he's taking these stories and then he's kind of running off in different directions with it. And with sure. the House of the Dragon, uh, with the, the Dance of the Dragons, obviously the biggest difference is that. These are not just people who are fighting with swords and shields on horseback. They have enormous fire-breathing dragons that can wreak absolutely catastrophic damage on everything that they encounter. So, yeah. like, yeah, we, I mean, <laughs> we're supposed to imagine the narratives of the medieval period taking place in addition to weapons of mass destruction. Um, yeah. So it, it's a little bit, you know, of course. Uh, it's a lot. <laughs> it's, it's a lot to deal with. This is a question from Jeremy. In the Ice and Fire universe, there are swordsmen of great renown. Very often we'll hear tell of like the greatest swordsman I ever saw or similar legends about allies told by enemies. In France or England or Scotland, etc., are there similar legends of actual warriors who became legendary? Yes, uh, and I think what's interesting is that 
such these things are discussed in our medieval sources. Um, so medieval chroniclers often made reference to the nine worthies uh, when they were discussing their heroes. And this is a list of of mythical and ancient historical figures who were held up as being, you know, the, the exceptional examples of warriors. Uh, so it included figures like Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, King Arthur and Charlemagne. Mm. And so they would compare the heroes of their day to, to those classic figures. Um, and, and, and that's often, you know, quite made quite a lot of. Uh, you get examples of particular knights and warriors who are held up as being exceptional. So so one is, is the English knight, Sir Giles d'Argenton. Uh, he was a, a crusader and a, and a famous knight who Edward II specifically recruited to be part of his bodyguard for the campaign that led to the Battle of Annaburn in 1314. Um, uh, sorry, and, uh, again, the name of the knight is Sir Giles d'Argenton. D'Argenton. All right. Thanks. Yes. Um, and and he he does his job. He he as the battle is going against the English, he helps escort Edward II from the battlefield. But his honour won't let him leave uh, while the battle is still ongoing. So he sends the king on his way, and then he charges back into the thick of the action, um, and is killed. Uh, and Scottish sources, you know, writing about you know what is an enemy knight, Scottish sources say that he was one of the three greatest knights in Christendom at that time, alongside the Holy Roman Emperor and perhaps unsurprisingly, King Robert I of Scotland. Um, well, I'm a, all right, let me just ask you this, because I'm a little bit of, of a cynic when it comes to these things. <laughs> so is it that he's the greatest knight or is that he saved a king's life and so the king is going to make sure that, they're, you know, that his reputation lives on? Uh, whereas there may be a, you know better warriors out there, but they never saved a king, you know? <laughs> I mean, I think that would be the case if our only source for it were English sources, um, and you could then see okay. that it was it was kind of reflective of a of maybe a propaganda campaign. But I think it's interesting that you get Scottish writers saying the same, interesting. Uh, which seems to then suggest that you get that reflection of that that writers in the time can recognise idealised forms of behaviour, even. Uh, exhibited by members of, of the enemy uh, if it's if it's done for the right reasons if it's done well if it's bravery uh, and what have you then they still recognize that even if it's even if it's an enemy warrior that's doing it so i i, I think that that does seem to suggest it's something that a that happened but also b that it was something that that generated quite a lot of buzz at the time and that people recognize that as a as a as a, a warrior sacrifice almost hmm hmm and you were going to mention another knight uh, or another warrior, too, before I interrupted you. No, no, sorry. Yeah, um, I think that there are other ones that, that become famous, back to your point, there are other ones that become famous because they are written about, uh, and they have romances or, or poems or songs written about them that have come down to it. So you have, you have knights like the English knight William the Marshal. He had a storied career in the service of the various later 12th century English kings. He fights a lot in tournaments. He has a great reputation as a young knight, uh, as a tournament knight. He doesn't take part in very many battles, but but does participate in a lot of sieges. Um, but his career as a chivalric warrior is celebrated in the history that's written about his life uh, after probably in the years just after his death. And so that, that very much celebrates and records his life and, and, and saves it for, for posterity and also for young knights to show them what a knight should be. Hmm. And then late, later on, you get the French example of Bertrand de Guéclin, um, he French hero of the Hundred Years' War. He's similarly written about in, in, in verse form which celebrates his life and his military achievements, and indeed 
that poem suggests that he should be listed as a tenth worthy. So that idea that he should join the pantheon of the nine worthies and be added to that list of, of heroic figures. Let me ask you this question. I do get the sense that anytime you travel, it's kind of dangerous business. It just all, you know, there could just be bandits along the road. And I mean, I guess that's maybe one of the reasons that you would need a knight uh, nearby uh, just to protect the innocent, I suppose. Um, was it equally dangerous to travel by sea because of, I don't know, piracy or just, you know, people, you know, people that were stronger and had bigger ships picking on people who were less powerful that had, I, I guess the question is, um, which would which would have been more dangerous in terms of <laughs> robbers and bandits to travel by <laughs> land or sea? Um, possibly more by land, to be honest. Um, I think. Uh, I mean, you you would you would try to arm yourself with means of protection, usually you know a, a safe conduct from the king to travel through their territory. But yes, if you're abandoned, abandoned, that's not going to be worth the paper it's written on. Um, although, of course, if you're caught as abandoned, then you can also be executed for breaking the king's law. Right. Um, but 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 yes, I think you know travel by sea. Uh, yes, there is the chance of piracy. You know, the, there are plenty of pirates working independently or, or indeed sometimes for for kings and, and countries in in the middle ages in like the the north sea and in the baltic region i mean in the Med, in the mediterranean you have you have issues of north african pirates piracy as well uh which you have to be careful of um but i mean sea travel is dangerous Sea travel is more dangerous for other factors. Oh just, yeah, sure. You know, weather <laughs> and and the, the fact that you have to largely follow the coastline means that any bad weather is likely to blow you onto onto the cliffs and onto the coast. Yeah. Um, and, and and there's there's the danger of of just capsizing and sinking. There's also the danger of where you wash up. The locals might might just try to rob your cargo anyway. Um, and and you know all manner of nasty things happen mm-hmm. to to ships' crews that get washed up on on foreign shores. So my son and I were just, we were like doing voices to each other the other day. And uh, I broke into a macho man, Randy Savage voice. And he's like, wow, you do that really well. Which is a high compliment. You know, you, you whenever you get a compliment from your 15-year-old son, it's kind of a big deal, right? But when he oh. compliments you on how well you're doing macho man, it's like, yeah, but it might be you. the highlight of the month. So I think that like, Macho Man is the Gen X impersonation equivalent to the Boomer Pacino. <laughs> that works. That actually really works. <laughs> I love, there's nuance to Macho Man, right? I mean, like, you do a Macho Man, pretty much everybody gets it. But I love that when Macho Man is not, like, getting super excited and, like, the the um, the cellophane uh Sunglasses mm-hmm. are are aren't off yet. Oh, you gotta know. love Macho Man when he's like like a super low decibel, right? And he's completely riffing. It's just like free form jazz, and you know you know he's off script. He's at some point he's just trying to rile up the bass, but he's just wanna tell you just I love it's just it's all it's sensual. So, in a way. Uh, yeah, no, it is. It's it's very sensual. Now, I, so I showed my son a couple YouTube videos of Macho Man. Not him wrestling, but him being interviewed by Mean Gene. Yeah. 
and and there, poetry. There was this great. He had this little bit where he was like a prop comic. He came in. He was like, "Oh yeah, I'm calling the cream of the crop. I'm the cream of the crop." He oh, kept on calling himself the cream, and then he pulled out a little like tub of creamer that you would get at a diner. <laughs> And he had he had it and he was holding it up for for like a visual aid. About, like, like in case like when, you forgot what cream is. Like when Chad Johnson would pull the Sharpie out, you know, and sign the football after sure. something. That's amazing. So then he he holds it up and he's like you know, like doing three sixties, is kind of spinning as he talks. And then he he puts the creamer on top of his head. And balances it there as oh if he's gosh. like gonna show he's got amazing bounce, and it immediately falls off his head. <laughs> <laughs> but he's got another creamer oh in gosh. his other pocket. Back of creamer, dude. It's just genius. It's like I- I'm watching performance art. I mean, oh that's the thing. It's like to be an amazing performer in the ring, but to be even more amazing. As an interview. It was him versus the universe, and the universe is bringing gravity to a creamer fight. Who are not prepared. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Just, we will never see his kind again. Oh, man. No way. No way. I mean, it didn't. It. I mean, I remember being vexed at the time. Because <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. Is this an accent? Well, is first an, of all, is he this was an impediment? Just... He was amazing in that you're kind of like not sure if he's got a full deck of cards, but right. Miss Elizabeth just she looks like she's got together. You know, she's a very beautiful woman. She she's she seems cute. like she's like a like a aside from the fact that she's following this guy around. I could fix him. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like the he's one of the only guys that has sort of a woman that looks like she's got together in his corner. And so it almost brings him a bit of credibility. It's like, well, if she is into him. Right. Maybe there's something more here. Right. At first, you're like, maybe like a first glance, like, is that his niece? <laughs> you know, uh, she like, it's like his handler, like helps him get from place to place. Because um, he in, in Macho Man had that like, is he old? Like kind of quality to him. Like mm-hmm. always, like he had Huey Lewis syndrome. Yes, he he was the Huey Lewis of. But they all kind of did. It's like Honky Tonk. How old was Honky Tonk? Honky Tonk seemed like he could have been 20 or 60. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Big Boss Man was somewhere in, in the mid-30s to already dead. I never knew Hulk Hogan who wasn't bald. I mean, to be to be the best. Uh, he was the best, right? He was right. the best for, for, for a good decade. But he was clearly bald. Yeah, and I think that's what made, like... Ultimate Warrior is so menacing because I'm like full. He's got a full head of hair. He's like his muscles have muscles. He's jacked beyond belief. Yeah, but it was the hair. His hair had hair. Yeah, and it was the first time I think we really got to see like, oh, like I don't think these guys are in as good a shape as we thought. Like that's kind of that, you know. Until the Ultimate Warrior shows up. Yeah, when Ultimate Warrior shows up, you're almost like, yeah, this big. Big flourish at the end by Hulk Hogan where he, like, put his boot to someone's face. Right, right. Not that impressive. Mm-mm. It's not, it's not an elevator slam, I'll tell you that much. 
Yeah, the Ultimate Warrior was one of those first like moments when I think all of our sexuality was challenged, right? Like I think we were just sort of in a rut, you know. We just sort of we we we, we thought we you know we knew what we'd loved, mm-hmm. and then he came in and kind of upset the whole thing. Like, wait, I mean, I I was not I was not prepared to like have a new favorite. So like the tension between you know I think the audience and Ultimate Warrior was very palpable. Mm-hmm. Well, you weren't sure whether he was a good guy or a bad guy for a while. Right. And somehow, even when the makeup would like mostly fall off his face, I still had no idea what his face looked like. No, if I met Ultimate Warrior, he was like a, a really important figure in my life. It was like, you know, my pastor and Jesus and Ultimate Warrior. <laughs> and But if I met him on the street, I, would, I couldn't tell you. I, I oh, wouldn't no. be able if, to tell you. If the, if the Ultimate Warrior sans makeup, still full hair... And like, even if I mean, I don't if in a suit or something mm-hmm. uh, mugged me, there's no way I would just be able to describe. You know, I, I'm always sort of a little bit critical of people that don't recognize Batman without the cowl. Right. I, it's totally Ultimate Warrior for me. Like, I, mm-hmm. I I have no idea what he would look like without the face paint. Yeah. If he came in with glasses on, I'd be like, Ooh, what? <laughs> if he if he pulled the Clark Kent, right? No he way. was he was actually Mean Gene Okerlund. It could have been. I mean, I'm not... Conv- I mean, there's no talent. Did we ever there's... see those two together at the same time? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Steve, did you know that in the category of TV reviews, we are the second highest ranked podcast in the Philippines? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We've jumped uh, several, uh, almost 50 ranks in the last week. To become the second highest ranked television review podcast in the entire nation of the Philippines. The entire nation of the Philippines. Wow, that's it's nice to know what uh, what our demo is, you know. Yeah, so to all of our friends in the Philippines, I'd like to say kamusta po, and uh, we'd love to know mm-hmm. what it would take to be number one. <laughs> right. Yeah, is it, is, it, is it Lumpia references? Because I got them. <laughs> We could do a, a whole podcast review of Philippines cuisine. Mm-hmm. That would not require me to learn any any more than that one phrase that I just uh, <laughs> tried and probably <laughs> failed. Right. Um, yeah. No. But you know, I you know, it's nice. It's nice that that we're loved in the Philippines. But I would like to be number one. I I, I would like to know. I would like to know from our our Philippines listeners what would it take for us to become number one. And I want, so what is number one? They don't tell me. They send me these rankings by way of email. Interesting. And uh, so it looks like we're number two. We're also very high. We're number four in Finland and number five in Hungary. Well, Finland makes sense because um, I had a pen pal in fourth grade. <laughs> That's right. I forgot what you're uh, from fin- in Finland and. I I like he wrote me all the time and I think I wrote him once maybe twice mm. and it was like you know like he's asking all these questions about uh, America and I'm answering them and asking no questions about Finland like I just I was way just to like, represent way to be yeah an I mean, well I mean let's not pretend we like when Joe Biden says this is not who we are it's like uh, kind of <laughs> it's not who we are people people. <laughs> 
<laughs> when he's sending, uh, when he's asking, like, you know, all the right questions and, and you know, and, and rather than reciprocate, I'd be like, mm, my teacher's a real drag or what, you know, just dumb stuff, you know, like, I watched this today, you know, Jack Tripper was hilarious, you know, whatever. And, uh, <laughs> and so that's, so I'm wondering if, like, in all this time. Now, what was his grade, name? Do you remember his name? You probably don't. <laughs> Good Lord, No. <laughs> Well, I'm asking because we just... I'm not even positive it was Finland at this point. <laughs> I, I'm asking because we did get some uh, a listener email from Finland, which I will read. I can't wait. It's going to be like whatever it took to finally hear your voice. Now, it could be your pen pal. I'm not sure, but it is uh, uh, Misa. Was it was it Misa? Was it was your pen no, pal? No, I would have remembered Misa. All right. So Misa writes, hi, guys. I just want to let you know that Steve has just quite possibly become my favorite person. Mm. He has been on the list of contenders for ages and finally finding out that he agrees with me on the Game of Thrones final season and episodes tipped him into the lead. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, you're, I mean, you're just killing it in Finland. It's redemption. I'm going to assume that the Philippines <laughs> listeners are, are tuning in for me. For some reason, you're really popular in Finland. Yeah, I'm trying to hold. I got Finland on lock. I'm thinking, you know, going back to the Philippines thing, like what does it take to get the number one? We got to just find out who's number one and take them out. Yeah, it's, it's about market point. share, yeah. right? I mean, we could try to grow our product or we could try to eliminate the other. Mm-hmm. I'm I mean, gonna I, assume, when I say eliminate, I'm not. Let's just assume that it's uh, Aaron and Jim. Oh. I know at least where Aaron lives and I, I could make that happen. Pretty sure I can That's, make that happen. And the thing is, when I say take them out, like I mean, I don't mean like you know, murder them. Oh, I you're mean, gonna like, have to be more specific. I'm Italian. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, like, just they can't talk anymore. Oh, like that so would you help. just want you just want a, a trachea to be destroyed. I don't, I don't, I, I don't want to know the details. The, the okay. less I know, the better. I'm okay. just giving giving broad brush strokes here. Okay. You you do you you do the the detail work. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we don't care how for how long we're number one. We just want to know that we have been number one. So maybe I could just like punch Aaron in the throat one week. Mm-hmm. That would eliminate his ability to podcast for a week or two, and that would that would it would create some space yeah. for us. Like I'm not saying drop a safe on him, <laughs> but I'm saying if you dropped a safe near him, mm. like that would kind of shake him, right? Mm-hmm. Like he might like he's like, he might just have to take a week off. You know, he'd just be like, hey, I got to, I got to, I was too close. I need to really rethink, you know, yeah. maybe he'll go to like a cabin or go to the mountains or something. Just that sort of like to, to unplug or disengage for a while. Like that's all a good this scare. Is, this is a, this is a very sort of half measure on your part. <laughs> well, the thing is, I mean, like, and again, I'm not saying drop a safe on him, but like when you drop a safe near him, I mean, he could mm-hmm. zag. And then that was it. And then now number one is ours for, for a while. Yeah, and maybe we could take hold, you know. Maybe once we have the spot, we could, you know, try to actually cover the show with a little bit more depth and not talk about things like maggot bowls and people's haircuts and things like that. Oh. <laughs> Unless that's what's moving the needle. <laughs> Unless that's what's doing it. Unless that's yeah. what's doing it. I do have another email to read this is from Kristen. she says i move that the opening theme song of house of the dragon be changed from its current iteration to add steve and anthony singing peter dinklage over and over during the opening credits 
I think we can make this happen. Yeah. The fact that Peter Dinklage does not appear in House of the Dragon should not be considered an obstacle to this proposal because the Peter Dinklage song is at least as awesome as the Ed Sheeran song sang in Game of Thrones. <laughs> Love Electric Boogaloo and Double Dragon. Keep up the good work. So thank you, Kristen. We could either superimpose Peter, the Peter Dinklage song and the opening credits or Steve and I could just sing it to each other every episode. Those are two options that I've come up with just on the fly here. What if you could get Peter Dinklage mm, to help us to sing, sing the song? Yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah, that that would that would be quite something, wouldn't it? That would be something. Or if we could get like maybe like a, a Peter Dinklage lookalike. We could do like a, a Dinklage silver spoons so like <laughs> when silver spoons when Alfonso had the fake Michael Jackson for his birthday. <laughs> Yeah. Now, but it was the real Menudo, I think. Yeah, the real Menudo. Uh, there was a whole thing about, like, I think uh, Ricky lied about getting Menudo. Yeah. And then somehow, uh, was did Richard have uh, connections to Menudo? I think, well, I do remember. You know, rich people know other rich people, but I do remember that there was at one point a case of mistaken identity because one of the band members of Menudo was named Ricky. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so then the girl, the wannabe girlfriend, or the, mm-hmm. the, the followed followed him instead. Uh, I've watched. I've, I think I rewatched the Menudo scene from uh, Silver Spoons um, a lot. <laughs> I don't, it's the thing about me that uh, I don't know if this is going to hurt our, mm-hmm. our Finland yeah. <laughs> rep or not, but. I mean, it's it's one of the the all time because like I'll get the song in my head and I and I think I know what the song is and I just don't, and uh, so I'll just kind of make noises instead of actually uh, singing the lyrics. So you look it up. Yeah, I think it's called like "Keep Keep on Moving" or something. But I yeah, and I'll just sort of just do nonsense words because I. But I, anyway. Yeah, I think that. Sorry, Kristen. I think we're going to go ahead and call an audible here. We are not going to do the Peter Dinklage song. I think it's going to be us singing Menudo, but we're not going to be singing the actual lyrics. We're going to be singing nonsense lyrics. Yeah, just my nonsense and, lyrics. Uh, do, we'll do our best. We'll do our best. <laughs> okay. Um, we do have a couple iTunes reviews, and... Um, we love to get iTunes reviews. It helps people find us. And if we are, are ever going to overtake the fine folks um, who are number one in the Philippines, I think we're going to need some more folks writing us reviews on iTunes. It'd be even better if they were, like, if it's not another uh, House of Dragon, but it's like something maybe like more specific mm-hmm. to the Philippines, which means that like we've really cracked into their you know into their oh, absolutely. Whole, i was just assuming, you know. yeah no it's probably it's probably some like the, the you know the top show in the philippines uh has a has a dedicated podcast and they're always going to be number one unless we do something about it which i'm i'm, I'm doing my best uh to do something about it right now Okay, so this is the kind of review that you... If you're listening from the Philippines, this is the kind of review that we would love to hear from you. This is called Bedtime, and Robin and Elliot writes, I sometimes listen to this podcast while falling asleep. 
Take from that what you will. Dot dot dot. Uh, are you right? I, I hear your keyboard. Are you writing a review for us right now? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm I'm going to Google Translate, <laughs> and I'm trying to. So this this person says he listens to us while he falls asleep. He, he or she or they, uh, they fall asleep with us, uh, piping into their ear holes. Uh, do, do you feel like maybe we should be doing more lullabies on Double Dragon? <laughs> well, I think I think we've, we're nailing it. Is what what I'm gathering from this. We are, even if they're bored and they find us boring enough to go to sleep, they obviously need their sleep and they're appreciative. Mm. Or maybe they're trying not to fall asleep. Maybe they're at work oh. and they put us on to stay awake, and we are failing every time. We're failing. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's. I, I mean, it could be our dulcet tones that are very soothing, and mm, exactly yeah. what you need is you, as you go to sleep, and you absorb all of our knowledge as you're sleeping, and we infiltrate your dreams, sort of like a sweet Freddy Krueger. Um, this is a review from Brian. He writes, "Good stuff, five stars. Funny stuff, thorough, great academic guests." Probably the best Game of Thrones and Dragon Huts show out there. Thanks for the effort. Dragon Huts. I guess this is shortened form of House of the Dragon, but it does sound a little bit like a fast food franchise. Mm. Sounds delicious. Dragon Hut. Yeah, we you know, we were talking before about like a dragon egg burrito, like breakfast burrito. Mm-hmm. I think that that would yeah. be at least one of the items featured at Dragon Huts. Yeah, for yeah, their breakfast menu for sure. Um, you probably get. Um, I'm, I'm assuming everything's flame broiled. Everything's flame. <laughs> yeah, very good, very good. Uh, serve you know honey wine. Probably have to mm, serve some honey it. wine. Oh, so you're so you're thinking sort of like a fast food version of medieval times? Is that what we're looking at? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what I was thinking. Yeah, something like that. Now is this is this Targaryen themed? Mm. Is it a family business? I mean, I think that there's probably different, maybe different meals should feature different parts of the kingdom. Because mm. I think that you know people would like you know Sansa was really into lemon tarts. I think we could we could oh, definitely okay. do lemon tarts for a sort of our northern cuisine. Oh yeah, I mean you could have like Reek sausages. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're done. I, I'd like to apologize to all the folks of the Philippines. 